I think it was Martin Luther King who said, um, the curve of the universe bends towards justice. And I think the curve of the universe of finance bend, is bending towards justice. Okay, so my name is Mark Campanali. I'm the founder, executive director of a relatively new uh, non-profit financial think tank called the Carbon Tracker Initiative. I spent 25 years working in financial markets as, a, as an investment analyst, business development manager, thinking about these issues, um, covering climate change and <clears throat> uh, sustainable finance. And through those years, I, I kept on thinking about um, one of the biggest problems that the world faced, which is the problem of, of climate change, and the role of big cities like London as a financial centre in financing the fossil fuel industry, which is the biggest contributor to, to, to climate change. Uh, and um, through those years, I, th I was thinking, how can we unravel that? And that led to the creation of, of Carbon Tracker and um, coming up with terms like the carbon bubble and unburnable carbon and stranded assets. Mm. And it was really driven by uh, interaction between myself and, and one or two people, but particularly uh, the other founder of Carbon Tracker, Nick Robbins, who was working with me for, for many years at Henderson Global Investors. So uh, I have heard about the carbon bubble. I've mostly heard about it, not from you, um, but from a guy called Bill McKibben, who's been banging on. Uh, he's a big American, big American activist. Yeah. And people might have heard about, he had a big piece in, was it Rolling Stone? He did. Yeah, Global warming's yeah. terrifying new maths. That's making the thing. sure we never change. But now the financial industry in particular is beginning to understand that they're facing a carbon bubble that makes the housing bubble look small, that the stranded assets beneath the ground in oil, coal, and gas reserves, should we ever take global warming seriously, represent a huge, huge, huge risk to investors. And the wise ones are beginning to back away. I like that, a carbon bubble that makes the housing bubble uh, look small. You also wrote an article in Rolling Stone recently, a so-called... Um, so you invented that idea, um, is that right? Or how, yeah, did, how did that kind of yeah, work, the Bill got so, um, I mean, Bill's a critical piece of this puzzle because when Nick Robbins and myself were thinking about the idea, we were, 
What we were seeing at that time was the flotation on the London Stock Exchange of the world's largest coal companies and oil companies. And there were two or three that stuck out. And so London really was a financial centre for funding the fossil fuel industry. And I was seeing this coming through. And I was, at that time, it coincided probably with the science more. Everyone knew more about the science of global warming. And there were all these initiatives to do with investors about sustainability. And the paradox was, why was it that the more we knew about the science, the more we knew as, in, as, a, as financial institutions about the risks of climate change, why was it that the biggest pension funds in London were writing bigger and bigger checks because, of course, they're buying all these IPOs. IPO is... Uh, Initial public offering, you know, when a company lists their shares in the London stock market. I thought this was a paradox. How could this be true? Um, and part of that was because whilst you could say we can't burn all fossil fuels, it, how do we know with a particular company that, it, that maybe we could get away with their business plan? And so that led to the idea of, a very simple idea, of let's take the world's top 200 coal, oil and gas companies, let's look at their business plans, let's look at their reserves of fossil fuels and their resources, what they plan to do next. And let's look at the embedded carbon dioxide in the reserves of coal, oil and gas. Let's add it all up and let's assume it all gets burnt. How much CO2 does it release? And let's test that back against the science of, of, of carbon budgets, which tells us that we can really only emit something like, depending on who you are, something like 700 gigatons of CO2 can be released. Is that a lot? And it's time for the number of the day. Uh, uh, uh. I wonder what the number of the day could be. Let's find out, shall we? Well, I never know. Like to contextualise it, um, 700 is enough to take us uh, above two degrees of warming. Right. I remember global average mean temperature over is around 16 degrees, 16 and a half degrees uh, Celsius, and the global average mean temperature will rise by two degrees to 18 or, or 19 if we if we take it to three degrees. Um, so when we did that analysis, that was the idea behind it. It took us four or five years of lecturing on this, including visiting the offices of the New Economics Foundation and Friends of the Earth and Christian Aid and Greenpeace and WWF and lots of other people that we took it to at that time. This was 2003, four. Uh, everyone sort of said, well, that's such an obvious thing to do. Somebody must have already done it, right? So we thought, yeah, somebody must have already done this. It's an obvious piece of math to do, maths to do. Um, and eventually we thought, well, actually, after seven, six, seven years of talking about it, we suddenly thought, well, actually, let's go away and do it ourselves. And, and um, we raised a little bit of money, 3,000, 4,000 pounds to, to run the numbers. Um, and then we, our initial research came back and said, well, actually, you're probably onto something. Um, and then we produced a report, which we called... Um, Unburnable carbon are the financial markets carrying a carbon bubble? Question mark. And it was a long letter to financial market regulators like the Bank of England and stock exchange, you know, authorities. And and we published 100 copies because it was just an idea. And you know, when you have ideas, you just got to get it out of your system and bang. And we've been talking about it for so long, really. And the story goes back into the 90s if you really dig a little bit deeper as who we were talking to. And you know, uh, at that time. Um, so we printed 100 copies, 
and we thought we'd done our job. We released the report. I didn't even go to the launch because I thought it was just, you know, it was just one of those things. And I was, I had tickets with my family to go to Latitude, you know, to the, yes. to the music. Yes. And so I was there was King a Latitude. Yeah, so. you know, that was listening to, I can't even remember who I was listening to. Is this Mumford and Sons? Peak Probably Mumford something and Sons like that. Time. Something like that, yeah. I don't even know if I believe. I don't even um, and I was thinking, well, you know, glad we got that out of the system. Now I can go back to the rest of my life. Um, and uh, I discovered later that what happened was that um, our friends at Rockefeller Brothers Fund gave a copy to Naomi Klein, one copy of those 100 we printed. And she in turn gave a copy to Bill McKibben. And so about six, seven months later, Bill publishes in Rolling Stone magazine. And he spoke to Nick and he spoke to James Leeton, the head of research, who put, put this together. Um, and I thought, oh, yeah, that's interesting. Rolling Stone, what on earth is it doing in there? And, and then with the, in there. Yeah, well, yeah. we had Justin Bieber on the front cover. <laughs> that was the that was the addition. Um, and um, Bill went off on all this stuff about divestment, but he included he, he included all the analysis that we put in there, including he launched his Do the Math tour because he took a phrase from our report called Do the Maths, and it was became a joke because Americans call it math and we call it maths, yeah. and you know so. Um, and much to my surprise, our surprise, because it wasn't in the planning, um, it became one of the most downloaded articles on, on climate change mm. ever. And uh, well, Bill was, everyone sharing uh, yeah, it. Yeah, so Bill then did this tour. I went off to the launch of the tour, and I took part in a number of meetings, and, and I thought, oh, this is a bit unusual, because what Bill did, remember it was a letter to financial regulators. It wasn't a letter to the call for divestment. It said there's something wrong going on here. Bill then scrapped the second half of the report. He just took the first half of the report, we ran through the numbers and the science. And then he launched the divestment movement, which was not what we were thinking about at the time. And then everything accelerated then. So explain the carbon bubble. It's qu it can be quite complicated, but the basic concept, explain it from the point of view of if I'm a company, what does it mean for me? Well, what it means is that there are is a contradiction at the heart of your business model. If you're an oil company, and you see this in the plans of Shell and BP and Exxon and most of the others, what they want to do is sell more product. That's what companies do. But if the world has to limit emissions and limit warming to well below two degrees, then there's a core problem at the heart of the business models, which they can't grow more. They can't sell more. And... The idea of a carbon bubble, remember I've not said it's a financial bubble. We didn't say these companies are overvalued, you've got to sell their shares. What it means is, is that at some point, they're going to have to start moving backwards. They're going to have to be producing less, selling less, declining, managing their way out. Um, they're not doing that. They're not planning to do that. So there's this contradiction. Quite the opposite. From Quite the opposite. So um, that then led to the second idea, which came almost immediately, this idea of, what we called Wasted Capital Stranded Assets, which was the difficult second album, which came out, you know, 18 months later, which said that if you can't burn what we've already got, and our maths told us that they have around, remember that figure, 700 gigatons of CO2? Well, the companies together, just the listed companies, we're not including governments here, have around 1,500 gigatons of CO2 stalled up in their reserves and the resources. If you can't burn what you've already got, why are we spending more money finding more? And actually, you build all this infrastructure, pipelines, oil refineries, coal-fired power stations, mines, ports to take the coal to China or India, wherever you think there's going to buy it. 
you're investing billions and actually trillions of dollars building the infrastructure to support the fossil fuel economy, which is going to be redundant in 20 years, 15 years. That's wasted capital. That's owned by us, by pension funds and members of the public and insurance companies. And, and uh, so these would become what we call stranded assets. They'll be left redundant, the empty coal-fired power station, the empty oil refinery. And somebody would put the money up front, paid for it, but isn't going to get the money back. And, and there you have a nugget of actually this creates new risks to financial markets. It creates lost opportunities. For, you could have deployed the capital into something completely different, renewable energy infrastructure, you know, whatever it might be. And uh, that was you know, the second thing that came through strongly in our work, which was actually we need to rethink how financial markets work, led to other ideas around ecological boundaries to the planet. You know, if we, you know, it's not just fossil fuels that face these barriers or boundaries, ecological boundaries. You see it in other areas of the economy as well. So the financial concept was driven through the idea that um, we are misalloc- markets are misallocating resources, they're mispricing risks, they're misreading the speed of the energy transition, uh, the scale of the technology revolution. Here comes the rise of the electric car. Here comes the dominance of solar in new uh, infrastructure. At some point, this will tip against, mar- against the incumbents, and at, at, at some point, very quickly, in the same way that Kodak didn't disappear because people wanted to stop taking pictures. It got killed through a technological revolution. People didn't need film. You used digital. Same thing happening with electric cars and so on. So um, the financial risks suddenly came to the fore. And, and people began to think, actually, there are a lot of financial risks associated with the energy transition, associated with investing in fossil fuels. And, and that played into the divestment narrative as well. Color slides or home movies always use dependable Kodak film. The film in the familiar yellow box. So doesn't all of that, to an extent, assume that we're actually going to stop runaway climate change happening? So the Paris Agreement, which was, what, a couple of years ago now, said we will limit temperatures to two degrees, ideally. And if I understand it right, a lot of the carbon tracker analysis basically says, assuming we do that, then all of this stuff will be stuff will be redundant. Uh, but what if we don't do that? Because it's not irrational, to be honest, if you're a company and you've got loads of money and stuff, to say, yeah, but the world's not actually going to sort that out, is it? We, uh, I talked uh, 10 episodes ago or so, we talked to Shell about this, and, and Shell's position was, look, you know, it'd be lovely to stop all this climate change happening, but, you know, people are going to use loads of oil. And if you're an oil company, that's, that makes more sense for you. Peabody Coal went bust a few years ago. And if you read their annual report and accounts the year before, what did it say? It said, our sector and our business faces a rosy future. Its bankruptcy was actually not because of a 20% drop in demand for coal. It's actually a 2% oversupply of coal led to its collapse. These, these changes happen on the margin, and you see this through history. Um, at some, there will be a tipping point or a moment in time when markets suddenly switch. Um, why is Tesla that turns over or produces less cars than Ford, you know, worth more than some of the biggest companies in the world because the markets are pricing in that Tesla may, it's possible, maybe even likely become a dominant player. Um, And suddenly markets actually will switch 
and actually say, well, actually, these are going to be the new players and we will value these. So the risks to the companies is being is the energy transition. And I mentioned electrification of cars and so on and so forth. Um, being the trip switch that, that switches off um, the public's interest in, in uh, the internal combustion engine. Today, if you listen to Radio 4, like I did, like most mornings, the, the sale of um, diesel cars last year in the UK dropped by 37%. Part of that was because of the, the, the diesel scandal. Part of that is a, a high awareness by the public of, of pollution concerns, maybe even climate concerns. Uh, but also, probably fundamentally, it's why, why do you want to use a Nokia phone when I've got a wonderful new iPhone? You know, people love the idea of shiny new devices, and, and I think the electric cars would be a wonderful shiny new device on the forecourts and, and the front drives of, of most of Britain within a few years. And so companies are actually not very good, particularly the incumbents are not very good um, at understanding this. And asking Shell their view on the energy revolution is a bit like asking horse salesmen in 19, you know, the turn of the 19th century into the 20th century their views on the rise of the electric car. You know, uh, rather the petrol internal combustion engine car is that you wouldn't ask those people first. You would, so um, it's always been the way that you know, all the way back from Luddites, you know, in the, in the century before that, but uh, trying to smash up machinery, um, people always resist the technological revolution because they don't think that it's in their interests or they don't think it's right or kill jobs or whatever reason they they use it for, but. But um, in some respects, it's inevitable. And I just don't think the energy companies have really understood this. And, and that's where the risks are. But markets are very good at, 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 at um, seeing this. Um, and change always happens on the margin. You know, when a share price drops by 50%, people think that's 50% of the shareholders selling their shares. Now, actually, for a share price to drop by 50%, you probably only need 5% of the shareholders to decide they're going to get out to drop the price. All, all that you need for prices to change is for there to be more sellers than buyers. It's a very simple, trite statement, but it's true. And in, uh, if a sentiment turns against a company like it did with Volkswagen over the Dieselgate sc- scandal, it wasn't all the shareholders heading to the door. It was just the marginal shareholders, 2% of the shareholders, like 3%. Facebook, right? I mean, that's a Same thing. Yeah. And uh, this is one of the th- things people misunderstand about markets. Um, is that they function like that and that change happens on the margin. 3% of people decide to sell aggressively um, and that can transform the, the prospects for a company just like that. I see why if you're the boss of Shell, you care. But so what if Shell go bust? Why, you know, what's, the, what's the problem with that? I mean, obviously, you know, don't sue us, legal team. But like, why, what is the problem with that? Well, no one's sitting here for a minute thinking we want Shell to go bust. Aren't we? No, I'm not, for, uh, I'm not thinking for that. I think certainly for the next 10, 15 years, they're a great energy company, a big employer. Um, but if you're a shareholder in that company, one of the things you don't want it to do is to misread the tea leaves. Think that one thing is happening when the other thing is happening. If they're plan- the world says, that's what the Paris Agreement says, that they should be planning for orderly managed but planned decline. Here they are, planning for growth. They think the world's going to need 25% more fossil fuels, particularly oil and gas. Now, if you're a shareholder and you're looking at that, um, if that's wrong, then that will lead to huge value destruction. Now, let's twist this and think the other way around. Um, For Shell to be making money in the future, 
Um, demand has to grow and that will lead to oil prices holding up. Why is that important? Is all the cheap and easy oil to find? You know, what we were finding in the 70s and 80s and probably even the 90s has been found. Most of what's left that's undiscovered, not all of it, most of it is in difficult places where you need a high oil price to justify its extraction. So a lot of projects need the oil price to be above $50, $60 a barrel to make money. I drink your Milkshake. I drink it up. Now, if your portfolio is an oil company and Shell has got these projects and Carbon Tracker, we've been through their project list and there's a lot of projects that don't make sense um, in a climate constrained world or even in current prices. Um, if most of your projects need oil to be at $60 a barrel. Now, what happens if, if oil demand is killed and oil prices hit down to, say, $40 a barrel, which remember there were $30 a barrel last year? big financial strain. So all of a sudden, you're getting these negative returns. You invest all your capital. Oil price stays low because demand declines. Electric cars eat into your business. Um, and oil, oil suddenly reverts back to, say, $40 about. And you've, as management, have said, no, it's gonna, we're going to sanction projects because we think oil price is going to stay up. That will create value destruction like we've never seen for the oil companies. Now, one or two things will happen. You can say, well, let's wait for that to happen, okay? Who knows? Let's wait. Or the other thing you can do as a shareholder is say, don't let that happen. Focus on the projects which you've got still that cost $20 a barrel to get out of the ground. Sell at 40 We'll make the margin. We'll take the cash. Thank you very much. But it does mean you're getting smaller. Now, there's a financial rationale for that, and markets understand that. So what we think will happen in the future is companies, oil companies in particular, plan for growth and that growth doesn't materialize, the city will penalize them. And uh, people, you know, in the same way in the mining cycle with coal, a lot of chief execs lost their jobs in the last, you know, five years. The same thing will be happening in the future for these companies. But they're hoping for IBG, YBG, I'll be gone, you'll be gone. You know, um, I'll retire with my stocks options and my pension fund and let the next chief exec worry that, sort that one out. And this is the problem that we face. We have to challenge the companies about their plans today. And that's what shareholders are increasingly doing. So do you think, are you optimistic or is that the wrong word to use about big finance. I mean, a lot of people who listen to this podcast might have a kind of image of fat cats sitting on piles of money, not caring about, you know, the day after tomorrow. Do you think that's right? I mean, or or is this finance system, are we stuffed with this finance system? Do we need to fundamentally change the way it works? I think it was Martin Luther King who said, um, the curve of the universe bends towards justice. The universe is long, but it bends towards justice. I, I like that phrase. I think it applies pretty much to everything, and it includes finance. And I think the curve of the universe of finance bend, is bending towards justice. And we see that through um, uh, not just individual savers writing to their pension fund and writing to their bank or asset management managers saying, I want you to take my views into account. That's happening, and we should be doing more of that. But what's also happening is that the management at the highest levels of companies like Legal and General, Aviva, AXA, um, HSBC, you know, can you believe it, are taking a similar approach. And they're building new coalitions of interests, of common interests, that says 
that if governments won't act in the interests of our savers, we will act. We have a fiduciary duty to protect the interests of our pension fund beneficiaries 20, 30, 40 years into the future. We will act in the absence of government action, and, and we're going to act in the following ways. And in the case of some of the ones I mentioned, it's selling coal, refusing to insure coal fire power stations or new coal mines. We'll divest oil sands. Now, um, I, I think that um, that sense of, of uh, you know, collective action, collective wisdom, um, and you're not just seeing it on climate change, you're seeing it on gender diversity, which has interestingly been led by women leadership in, in the world of finance, particularly in the city of London, but also by um, grown-up men thinking about this is in the right interests of of their customers. And if you watched, I think it was BBC News just last night, you know, um, there was an interview with the guy who runs TSB saying that this is, this is in the interests of not just us as a company and our customers, but it's the interests of society. And I think, you know, that's person, it was just one snapshot, reflects that. So, and I think that uh, more investment institutions are working out, not that they can do nothing, but they can do something. Now, it doesn't mean that markets are, are going to get this right, because markets are not often good at thinking about the long term. But what is true is that uh, markets can recognise these faults. And, and um, you know, what, I can't applaud the foresight of Governor Mark Carney of the Bank of England you know, I, enough because he's, he saw, he gave his speech on the tragedy of the horizons. So if that estimate is even approximately correct, it would render va the vast majority of reserves stranded literally unburnable. And he picked up, he used our phrase unburnable carbon, which he took straight from our first report in his speech to lawyers well, of London. must have been nice. Well, yeah, well, I, you know, I mean, I had my 10 minutes of fame. I think everyone gets one at one point while I was asked to present to the Financial Stability Board, all the heads of the central banks at the Bank of England three years ago, was it four years ago, where I presented our research, which then led to the, you know, the task force and climate-related financial disclosures, where they said climate is a major risk to financial markets. The strategy of the horizon is not very good at thinking about the long term. So I don't think financial markets are fundamentally evil. I, you know, the saying that, that, that money is the root of all evil is, it didn't, you know, the passage, a biblical passage, what they say was the love of money was the root of all evil. And I think what you have got is some players that love money too much that leads to curious behavior which is damaging to society and so i passionately believe that we need to reform financial markets but where i think where the lesson i have learned is that within markets we have friends and allies and that part of our job is if we believe in a progressive solution is to gather our allies to as an effective force the churches the charities the foundations the pension funds the trade union pension funds work with our allies speak clearly about what changes we need to make uh, work with the European Union with their new high-level group on on sustainable finance, and and work even with you know groups like the City of London, which would not necessarily be natural allies with their Green Finance Task Force, and and find our friends and and speak with a collective voice, but also listen to the public. You know, the public has a crucial role to play here. Um, everybody does because I think you know there's more power, latent power, with the cit citizens than they'd imagine. Writing if you've got a policy with. An insurance policy with your, you know, with your household insurance policy or your contents insurance policy with the PRU, that gives you a strange vote right in saying, look, this is my views on this topic. Um, we don't use that latent power enough, in my view. And that's why I love groups like Share Action, who help mobilise on, on these types of issues. I thought you said you didn't have any.
Oh, I thought you meant real money. Oh, this is this is just a bit of loose change. I must have left it in my codpiece when I sent these tights to the laundry. Uh, we, about five or six episodes ago, we talked to people who've been involved in university divestment campaigns, so getting, in this case, SOAS to uh, divest all of its money. Can you just explain a little bit, very briefly, about whether that's worth doing and what it is, and whether if I'm in a university or I'm in a, you know, a workplace, whether that's something I should get behind? Um, my view was originally that to get everyone to divest would take so long that we would miss the opportunity to make the changes we need now. So if you think that power is concentrated in the hands of 20 to 30 people, now who are they? They're the heads of the world's largest financial institutions, the Black Rocks, the Invesco's, you know, the Schroders, State Streets. If we can get them in a room and say, this is in the collective interest of society, regardless of what governments do, let's spend our time getting them in the room and, and agreeing to work together, which is what happened in when they all decided to vote down Exxon over the climate resolution that happened last year. Biggest collective action. Um, what was that? Which is when the largest financial institutions in the world supported a resolution against Exxon's wishes to come up with a climate plan or disclosure, which is what Exxon had to do. That basically said, it's fine, don't worry about it. Well, the report, what the report said is something different. You can read Carbon Tracker's view on that on carbontracker.org. Uh, so, now, so that made me think, well, okay, let's do that. Um, because we can achieve bigger wins there than trying to get lots of disparate groups that are disconnected to divest and that may, all you're doing is transferring your shares from one person to another. And the person who's buying them may not necessarily have your, you know, your, our interests to solve this problem at heart. And then I changed my mind. And I changed my mind because I think that what's actually happened is that the actions of thousands and hundreds of thousands of students pensioners, others, have mobilized together on a common cause, the divestinvest.org, um, the divestment movement, that's trickled through to f- foundations and hundreds of them around the world asking the world's biggest fund managers, why are you still invested in fossil fuels? We don't want to be invested in fossil fuels. What's going on? This industry is causing the problem. You've got to get out. And they, in turn, have had to go away and come up with, well, what is our position on this? Let's go and read something. Oh, look, Carbon Track has written something. Let's read that. Let's read what others have written on it. Um, what is our position? What it's done has been a, it's, it's been a, 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 a pointer to action where maybe they would not have wanted to act before. And so in that sense, the divestment movement has paid a, a, a really important point to lead the charge on this topic. And each, each year, the students... Um, in the colleges get mown down proverbially by Wall Street and the City of London and they think they've gone away and then of course in comes a new group of students the following year and they get mown down too but the problem that the, com- the fund managers face is that they keep coming back and they keep asking reasonable questions about their future. Um, so in that sense, I'm a supporter of the divestment movement, but own, in the extent to which you can have your voice heard. But does that mean that I disagree with the, um, everyone working together, that if you own the shares in Exxon, to be engaged? No, actually, the two approaches work together in tandem. They don't work against each other. And actually, one is a trigger for the other. One is not the alternative to the other. So, diver- so engagement is not an alternative to divestment. 
But uh, anyone listening to this, if you if you think that it isn't having an impact, the divestment movement, it it jolly well is. <laughs> it jolly well is. I've got to follow the money. Got to go to work. Mark, thank you so much. If people want to find out, uh, follow you on social media or find yeah, out more about the at Carbon Bubble. Um, is Carbon Tracker's uh, Twitter handle. Um, anyone that's interested in what I've got to say, which, I mean, I think 14,000, 15,000 people follow Carbon, 20,000 follow Carbon Tracker on Twitter, uh, at Carbon Bubble, or me, I, th- I think I've got the lonely 500 following me. I'm at, at Campanali Mark. Told you you had a big brain. Um, yeah. Wow, that's cool, that stuff. Um, a couple of reflections, I guess. The first is Dave asks guests short questions that make sense, but but not me. He asks me long, four-parted questions that don't make sense. So um, he can do it. It's just annoying that he chooses not to for me. Uh, the second thing is, oh, I was just really struck by... That that tension between what Shell is saying and what people like Mark are saying, and isn't that interesting? You, you know, you know that idea. You talk to Shell, they go, "Yep, it's going to be loads of us, loads of our product," and you talk to to anyone who's done the math, and they go, "Well, there can't be." So something's got to give. Um, yeah, really fascinating stuff. Uh, that That's about as much as my little brain with its lurgy adult state can manage. Um, but uh, I'm sorry, I wasn't, wasn't able to take part. I would have obviously asked even more insightful questions than Dave. Um, but uh, I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, bring on, bring on the carbon bubble, eh? Right, that's just about it. Thank you very much, Uncle Ollie, for phoning in from quarantine. And thank you to Dave for doing all the work. And thank you most of all to Mark for having a very large brain. You can get in touch with us and tell us what you thought of the show. Email us at hellootsustainababble.fish or find us on Facebook or on Twitter at The Babble Wagon. My name is Arabella and I will speak to you next week. Well, that was all very, um, in, uh,